0: This is Dr. Julian Allen, Deputy Editor of the Annals of the American Thoracic Society, and I'd like to welcome you to this podcast discussing an article on primary ciliary dyskinesia. With me is Dr. Margaret Lee, Professor of Pediatrics at the University of North Carolina School of Medicine and Director of its Cystic Fibrosis Center. So I'd like to Welcome, Dr. Lee. We're going to be discussing an article that is in this month's issue of the Annals uh, entitled Standardizing Nasal Nitric Oxide Measurements as a Test for Primary Ciliary Dyskinesia, and Dr. Lee is uh, the lead author. Dr. Lee, welcome. Thank you. I was wondering if we could start by you briefly describing primary ciliary dyskinesia, what it is for our listeners.
1: Primary ciliary dyskinesia is a rare lung disorder that's characterized by genetic defects in cilia. And typically it's autosomal recessive, but there are multiple different genes that can cause the disorder. And when cilia don't work, then we don't move mucus out of the airways. And so those folks are prone to having infections in their airways, including the bronchi, the nasal passageways, the sinuses, and the eustachian tube and middle ear. And so patients typically present with history of chronic upper respiratory symptoms with nasal congestion, recurrent ear infections, and lower respiratory symptoms with chronic productive cough and recurrent respiratory infections.
0: Thank you. I've always been curious as to the finding that nasal nitric oxide is actually low in these patients. Do you have any insights into why that is, since usually I think of nitric oxide as being a reflection of inflammation, and I know that patients with primary ciliary dyskinesia have inflammatory airways disease. Why would the nasal nitric oxide be low instead of high in this disorder?
1: At this point, we can answer that question as far as why nasal nitric oxide is low in primary ciliary dyskinesia. It's an observation that was made 15 years ago, and to this point, no one can give an explanation for why it's low. We presume that it's something to do with regulation of NOS, the uh, enzyme that produces nitric oxide, but we still do not understand how that's connected to cilia. Mm -hmm.
0: Very interesting. So with that, uh, I was wondering if you would uh, summarize the main findings of your paper in this month's annals.
1: Yeah, this study was done by our Genetic Disorders of Mucociliary Clearance Consortium. That's a group of seven sites across North America and is part of the Rare Diseases Clinical Research Network supported by the NIH. We have sites in Chapel Hill, in St. Louis, Missouri, Bethesda, Maryland, Toronto, Canada, Denver, Colorado, Seattle, Washington, and Palo Alto, California and this group got together and, and worked out standardized approach to evaluating patients who are suspected to have primary ciliary dyskinesia and we use a standardized medical history form, a st- standardized physical exam. We have standard operating procedures for nasal nitric oxide measurement, for nasal ciliary biopsy, and for PCD genetic testing. And all of this data is put uh, we have a web-based data entry and that's managed by a data center in, in uh, Tampa, Florida. So this provides us a, a very systematic, standardized way of evaluating the patients, but also data that we can go back and evaluate like we did in this study. Yes. Uh, so what the main things that we wanted to do was to see if we, with using a standardized approach to measuring nasal nitric oxide, we could establish a, a cutoff value that could be used for testing for this disorder. And as I mentioned before, it's for the last 15 years, there have been several studies showing that nitric oxide is low in PCD, but those were studies done at single sites with small numbers of patients. So we wanted to look at larger numbers and use a standardized approach across different centers. So the way we did this was first at UNC, we evaluated uh, 143 patients with PCD that was confirmed by hallmark ultrastructural defects, and then evaluated 78 healthy controls and 146 disease controls. Were, were,
0: were those um, ultrastructural defects the gold standard against which you compared? Uh, that's the
1: gold standard for establishing this. Later, when I get to the other sites, we also use genetic testing. But for this part, we use the uh, hallmark ultrastructural DNA. I understand. So after we use those values to establish a cutoff with a sensitivity of 98% and then evaluated its uh, specificity and positive predictive value and negative predictive value. And then after establishing that cutoff, we tested how that performed at the other sites around the country using the same standard operating procedures. So we were able to show from our studies at the LEAD site that PCD was, very low, with values of 20.7 plus minus 24.1 nanoliters per minute, and much lower than the healthy controls that were in the range of 304 plus or minus 118 nanoliters per minute.
0: That's a big difference, yeah.
1: A huge, almost over tenfold difference. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm and the disease controls asthma and COPD were also much higher than PCD but one group that overlaps with PCD is uh, cystic fibrosis about a third of the patients with cystic fibrosis fell within the PCD range so mm-hmm. that's one disease that when using nasal nitric oxide that's the one disease that people must be careful to rule out before yes. uh,
0: yeah using um, other other methods yeah
1: so the cutoff value that we were we defined was 77 nanoliters per minute and had the sensitivity of 0.98 and the specificity of over 0.999, which was reflected this wide difference between healthy controls and PCD. Mm-hmm. And using that, we then looked at the six other sites where there were 155 consecutive enrollees in the study at the uh, six other sites. And this cutoff correctly identified 70 of the 71 individuals who had PCD confirmed by ultrastructure genetics. So that was 98.6%. And then of the remaining 84, there were 21 who had nasal nitric oxide values below the cutoff. All of those had very strong phenotype. And we suspect that many of those may have PCD once we have better genetic test to, to divine them. Mm-hmm. So if you think about using nasal
0: nitric oxide, do you think of it as a screening test for PCD or a diagnostic test? And what is sort of your feeling about what's the difference between a screening test and a diagnostic test for a disorder such as primary cellular dyskinesia?
1: I think many of the prior reports had talked about using nasal nitric oxide as a screening test for PCD. I think of a screening test as a test that's used to identify an unrecognized disease in a population of individuals before they have symptoms, like when we're doing newborn screening for cystic fibrosis or if women are getting mammograms to uh, screen for cancer. It's looking at a large population and you are going to follow up with other tests on a group of people that are identified as positive by that test.
0: And it, uh, So it's important that a screening test would have a, a low false negative rate then, I guess. Right, right. Yeah.
1: right. And when I think of a diagnostic test, it's usually somebody who's either been identified by a screening test or somebody who comes in with symptoms that you're looking for a test that's going to help, is, is going to confirm that they have that disorder. So there you want something that's more of a specific test. Um, in in this case, we evaluated people who already had a high index of suspicion for PCD. They were referred to these centers for that purpose, and so I do not see this as a screening test. This yes. is a, mm-hmm. a diagnostic test in mm-hmm. people who are referred in. Now, you could call this an adjunctive diagnostic test. I don't think this is the only test. And people, to me, a, a true confirmatory test would be a genetic test.
0: Mm-hmm. What's the role of genetic testing, would you say, at this point? How, how good a test is that for... Um...
1: That's that's evolving and becoming better with with time. Over the last five years, there's been a, a true explosion in genes identified, and now up to 28 different genes that that encode structural proteins or proteins that are important for organization of cilia, and there are probably many other genes mm-hmm. yet to be identified. Some people have predicted that these 28 genes would identify about 70% of people with uh, PCD. So it's not adequate to be used as a sole test, but it, if you can mm-hmm. identify two disease-causing mutations in an individual, it certainly it gives you the definite confirmatory test.
0: So do you think that doing the combination of genetic testing and ultra analysis would increase the yield of, of diagnostic utility uh, combining those two tests is that known
1: Well they're they're testing different things mm-hmm. so the ultrastructure I think you're losing. you're probably picking up about 70% we have shown that there are genes like DNA H11 that are associated with normal ultrastructure so mm-hmm. there certainly would be people that would be missed yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. And in this manuscript, we showed that the individuals with DNA H11 mutations who have normal ultrastructure had nasal NO in the same range. so
0: uh-huh.
1: So I think having the three tests helps. the nasal nitric oxide, ciliary ultrastructure, and genetic testing.
0: Can I ask about one other test that has been mentioned, especially in the European literature, uh, high-speed video microscopy? Um, Is that a useful adjunct test as well?
1: I think it's it's a very useful adjunct test if done by individuals who are adept at doing that test. And the, there are people in Europe who are, have developed this technique and can recognize the different patterns of ciliary beat that are associated with primary ciliary dyskinesia. The hard part is that... You can also get secondary changes and, and alterations in ciliary beat. And so some of the people in Europe are now screening if they see an abnormal beat. They'll put the cells in culture, wait for them to resiliate, which can take several weeks in, mm-hmm. in cell culture, and then look at the ciliary beat after they've been in cell culture. Mm-hmm. So it takes really specialized labs to do that.
0: Yeah, yeah. My understanding is actually that you can also get some secondary changes in ciliary ultrastructure with chronic inflammation due to other causes as well, but are they pretty easy to differentiate from the abnormalities characteristic of primary ciliary dyskinesia?
1: Some are and some aren't. I think the one that's led to some False diagnosis of PCD in the past was absence of the inner dining arm. There were studies uh, done in the UK showing that on repeat biopsy, that a substantial portion of those were were normal. So Mm -hmm. that was likely a transient secondary change rather than a primary genetic change. I understand. Well, Dr. Lee, I really want to thank you
0: for spending some time with us and describing your article and uh, elucidating it. And uh, I also want to mention to our listeners that in the same issue, of the annals in which your article appears is an editorial by Dr. Jane Lucas from the Primary Ciliary Dyskinesia Center and the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Southampton in the United Kingdom. So um, you might find it interesting to read that editorial as well as the article that Dr. Lee discussed. Thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you.